God bless you this morning. Thank you for coming out and being with us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and reading uh, verse 1 through verse 9. A few verses in your hearing this morning. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. It's hard to put affliction and joy together in the same sentence, isn't it? But only the power and the presence of God can bring those together. So that ye were in samples or examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you, from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything. Oh my goodness, what powerful verses that start out this letter to the church in Thessalonica. I want to speak the few moments that I have with you this morning on this simple subject, clarity in the midst of confusion. Clarity in the midst of confusion. Everybody said, in the name of Jesus. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. I was telling uh, my sons this week, we were uh, eating lunch. We were out at a um, establishment, eating establishment, and I was telling them that you know there's times in your life when things don't seem to make sense, and it seems like you're trying to do the right thing, but you're not getting the right result. And I told them, I said, I remember such a time of confusion in my own life, and I had to, I had to make a conscious decision that I would stick with biblical principles and principles that we learn and read and know from the Word of God. And you have to do that even when it doesn't make any sense. And then I told him, I said, now, you guys are going to be teenagers before long and you're going to have a lot of temptations and you're going to be hit with a lot of stuff because the enemy knows your future and your potential and he'll try to derail you while you're still young and because he doesn't want you to accomplish all that he knows is going to be accomplished if you stay true to God. And well, I was just, you know... I guess being a pastor at, at, at my own home and with my own family at, around a lunch table in a restaurant, when I said, you know, you're going to be hit with a lot of things, my seven-year-old daughter piped up and Sophia, she said, I know that's true, I've already been hit with something. <laughs> and we all stopped and we looked at her and we said, what? She said, it's called Bible quizzing. <laughs> she, she has started Bible quizzing this year, which means that you're memorizing verses and so she sees this as being a real trial <laughs> having to memorize the word of God and we all laugh but you know sometimes it's not easy to 
distinguish between what's a blessing and what's a trial. We live in this information revolution, this information that is pushed to the limits of our humanity by delivering us an ocean's worth of information on a daily basis, something that now researchers are determining is causing knowledge fatigue. How many of you ever felt like you had knowledge fatigue? If you've ever been to school, you felt that way. I just can't learn anymore. I remember I had a professor that said, your mind can only absorb as much as your seat can endure. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. But this is the reality of the world that we live in. Knowledge doubles every year. More than one million websites are created each day. And some 65% of preschoolers today will work in jobs that do not yet exist. The bottom line is that we don't need more information. We just need more meaning from the right information. Clarity. In 1863, there was a historic event designed to memorialize soldiers who had lost their lives during the American Revolutionary War. So the event uh, planners, they, they secured one of the greatest orators of that day to be the keynote speaker. His name was Edward Everett. He spoke that day for two hours and he delivered an address that consisted of 13,607 words. There was also another speaker that day. He was the President of the United States. His name was Abraham Lincoln. And he had just scribbled some notes down on, a, on the back of an envelope and he got on and off the platform so fast that the photographer didn't have a chance to take his picture. But the Gettysburg Address that Lincoln delivered that day was 286 words in length. Today, his words still echo in the lives of millions of Americans and nobody even knows who Edward Everett is, though he spoke 13,000 words that day. When I read that, I was motivated this morning, to which all of you should shout a great big hallelujah, to speak 267 words, not 13,000 words. <laughs> but suffice it to say that fewer words do have further reach. And so in the midst of information overload, in the midst of confusing times, I would like to leave with you this morning one simple, clear biblical truth. First Thessalonians that we read about in our text is understood by many Bible scholars to be the earliest of Paul's epistles or letters. Paul's original visit to Thessalonica came as a result of miraculous direction from God. While ministering in Asia Minor, which is now Turkey in modern day, Paul was directed in a vision to cross the Aegean Sea into Macedonia and to take the gospel there for the first time. He talks about that in Acts chapter 16 and verse 9. This was a crucial event in the history of the Christian church because through this journey, the gospel moved to the west and the evangelization of Europe began with one vision. Following short stays at Neapolis and Philippi, Paul arrived in Thessalonica in the summer of 49 A.D. 
Thessalonica was a major center in Macedonia with a location that was very conducive to commerce. It was a, a free city and it was ruled by its own council or citizens. Since 146 BC, Thessalonica had been the seat of Roman government for all of Macedonia, earning for itself the description, the mother of all Macedonia. Paul regarded Thessalonica as an important location for the spread of the gospel. It had the, a synagogue that was there, and that offered a, an obvious place for him to begin his ministry. But his message in the synagogue was rejected. But it did not deter the apostle-slash-missionary Paul. <laughs> Persecution can't stop purpose. And Paul had clarity as to what his purpose was. I think that we are successful Christians if we can simplify and clarify what our purpose is. In the initial months of the ministry that Paul had in the city of Thessalonica, he started to gather together wherever he could different believing Jews, numerous Gentiles, and, and several even very prominent women in the community, Acts 17, 4 through 9 tells us. So the success of this gospel brought jealousy. It brought resentment. It brought false charges from the Jewish leaders, which eventually uh, led to a riot. And it was a riot that, that went on throughout the city. And though all the charges were dismissed, Paul and Silas and Timothy felt that it was best to leave Thessalonica because they didn't want their particular case to be a distraction to the gospel. But from Thessalonica, Paul moves on now to Berea, then later to Athens. And then while in Athens, Paul sends Silas and Timothy back to the Macedonia churches to encourage them and to bring back to Paul a report of their growth and their spiritual healthiness. This pattern would later serve as a model for much of Paul's correspondence. Meanwhile, in the winter of 50 AD, Paul moved on to Corinth. Timothy rejoined Paul there, and his report on Thessalonica was so exciting that Paul immediately began to write 1 Thessalonians. He had several goals, I believe, for this first letter, and it's a fascinating study, the study of 1 Thessalonians. First, he wanted to encourage the whole church. Timothy had brought news of, of great growth to this church and of its tremendous impact on the surrounding communities. And Paul also wanted to encourage the Thessalonians to grow in spiritual maturity and Christian conduct. And the incredible letter is important, not only for its historical significance as Paul's first epistle, but also because of its guidance. It offered the Thessalonican Christians something very powerful. Not only how to live the Christian life as God intended it to be lived, but it also gave that church in Thessalonica, which was a part of Macedonia at that time. Now, of course, Thessalonica is a part of southern Greece. But at that time, it gave those people in that young church not only an encouragement, not only a roadmap, but it gave them clarity in the midst of persecution and confusion. He talks about thanking God for them. He talks about praying for them. He talks about remembering their hard work for the Lord. He talks about how they came to the Lord. Paul is literally filled with joy and excitement. And you can hear it and feel it in this letter that he begins to write. He has received this report 
from Timothy about the great progress that the church is making there in Thessalonica, but most notably is how they were affecting others with the gospel. Paul makes it clear that though he has several goals, he has a single salient point that he wants to make. Macedonia was affecting other people in a positive way by living out their faith, Christianity. I want to say this again. He was saying that Macedonia was affecting other people in a positive way by living out their faith, which is Christianity. We can summarize it all by saying they were sharing the gospel. They were helping others that were in need. And then later on when the churches in Jerusalem needed help, it was this young church, this church in Macedonia that opened their arms and opened their hearts and even opened their wallets to help the established churches of Jerusalem. This church in Macedonia was blessed because it had a world vision that the kingdom of God is greater than just our local church in Macedonia. I've come today to declare to you this single point. Nothing brings greater clarity than when the focus is on others and not on you. And this, of course, is the great challenge for us in this affluent culture called America that we live, this self-indulgent society that we are a part of, where everything is about what can you get, what's more, what to, this is just our culture, it doesn't mean we're evil people. America is one of the most compassionate countries in all the world, and the missionary work. When we were in Haiti last week, we saw groups from all over America that was down there helping that nation. I don't come to bash America, but I have come to tell you that there is a challenge that goes with the blessing. I said there is a challenge that goes with the blessing. Joseph was tempted more with the palace than he was with the pit and the prison. And when you're in the pit or the prison, you've got limited options. It's not hard to make the right choice. But when you're in the palace, when you are blessed, when you have options, it's more difficult. It's a greater challenge. David won all of the tests leading up when he was running for his life, when he was just a little boy on the shepherd field and, and the bear and the lion and Goliath and not taking King Saul's life. He won all of those, but when he was king, when he was in the palace, and the Bible said, when kings went to battle, David stayed home. Walking out on his rooftop and looking at all of his great kingdoms and blessings, uh, and he forgot, he forgot that it all came from God. Saw something that didn't belong to him. Bathsheba, who was Uriah, one of his great generals, who was on the battlefield fighting for the freedom of his country. But David saw her up on top of that roof taking a bath and decided his appetite could not be sufficed. And with all of the battles that he had won his whole life, a man who was after God's own heart. You say, preacher, why are you saying that? I'm here to tell you that there's a battle that we fight in an affluent culture. I've come to give you one single point this morning. 
You want to tell, I'm going to tell you how to live a life full of joy. You got to get the focus off yourself and begin to focus on other people. What can I do to help my fellow man? What can I do to serve somebody else? What can I do to feed the homeless? What can I do to build medical clinics? What can I do to reach out to my neighbor and my coworker? If you're not serving, if you're not volunteering, you're missing out on a great blessing. We live in a mixed up world because it is a self-centered world. But the way to find meaning and purpose, the way to find meaning and purpose is to focus on others, not on yourself. More than ever, this is the time of the year that we ought to reach out to other people. Yes, Thanksgiving is coming and we have a lot to be thankful for. Yes, we're in the midst of a presidential election season and everybody's yapping here and there. And there's all kind of voices. Information overload. I've got more information than I need. The other day, my seven-year-old daughter ran into the room. She said, I have news that I need to announce to the family. We were like, what? She said, the FPI is investigating Hillary. My wife said, you mean the FBI? She said, no, the FPI. I just heard it on the radio. I'm like, okay, we're shutting off all of these media outlets. <laughs> it's just kind of an inundating. It's just all over. And as Christians, we're like, what do we got to do? What are we supposed to do? What's our call? What's our purpose? I'm going to tell you what our purpose is. I know you're supposed to vote. That's your civic duty. I wrote a blog on it last week. But here's what I'm here to tell you today. That it doesn't matter who's elected president. It doesn't matter what governments come and go. The church is still going to be the church. And we're going to keep helping people. I said, we're going to keep helping people. You don't have to believe everything that I believe, but here's what you got to know. The mission of the church is to lift up the name of Jesus Christ. And if you're hurting, if you're struggling, I've come to tell you, you're in the right place. That's clarity in the midst of confusion. It has been said that we should pay it forward. How many of you have heard that term, pay it forward? Concept is old, but the phrase may have been coined by Lily Hardy Hammond in her 1916 book, In the Garden of Delight. Pay it forward is an expression for describing the beneficiary of a good deed, repaying it to others instead of back to the original benefactor. Pay it forward is implemented in contract law of loans in the concept of third-party beneficiaries. Specifically, the creditor offers the debtor the option of paying the debt forward by lending it to a third person instead of paying it back to the original creditor. This contract may include the provision that the debtor may repay the debt in kind, lending the same amount to a similarly disadvantaged party once they have the means and under the same conditions. So debt and payments can be monetary or by good deeds. And so pay it forward became a concept in our modern day vernacular. I would like to implement a new concept this morning. This is it. Pray it forward. 
See, you get original stuff right here at First Pentecostal Church. Pray it forward. Say, now how's this going to work, Pastor? I'm going to tell you how it's going to work. We all owe a debt to people that prayed for us when we were in need. Maybe you were sick. Maybe you were out sowing your wild oats. Maybe you weren't in church. Maybe you were in crisis. But somebody prayed for you. You had a mama or a daddy or a grandmother or a brother or an uncle or a daughter or a son or a co-worker. Somebody prayed for you when you were in need. And you may never be able to repay that debt. But you can pray for somebody else. Hallelujah. We're going to pray it forward. Oh, I'm thankful I had a mom and dad that raised me. I'm glad I had a sister and a family and a church that prayed for me. But I got to tell you, I'm going to pray it forward. And I'm going to reach everybody I can with the gospel. If it's in Palm Bay and Melbourne or Florida, North America or Haiti or Africa, it doesn't matter. If we got to pray, we got to pray for everybody. We owe Jesus a debt that we could never, ever repay. But we can pray it forward. (laughs) Hallelujah. He was the original benefactor. He forgave us of all of our sins. Washed us in his blood. How can I ever repay you, Lord? I can't, but I can pray for my neighbor. I can pray it forward. I can pray for those that are still not in the house of God, that are still not at an altar of repentance. I can pray it forward. Jesus told Peter, I prayed for you. When Satan desired to sift you as wheat, I prayed for you. The Bible says the Spirit maketh intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. You got all of heaven. You got angels. uh, You got God Almighty that's praying for you. How are we going to ever repay deity that prays for us? Uh, I tell you how we're going to do it. We're going to pray it forward. Uh, We're going to keep praying for our unsaved loved ones. Uh, We're going to keep praying for those that are in need. Uh, We're going to keep praying for everybody we can. And in so doing, you will bring clarity in the midst of confusion. See, it doesn't make sense that the Lord told his followers, pray for your enemies. That didn't make sense. Because the flesh says, devise schemes to extract hurt and pain upon your enemies. But Jesus said, pray for your enemies. That didn't make sense. Because you know what? When you pray for those that have despitefully used you and abused you, you bring clarity in the midst of confusion. Good God Almighty. Somebody said, I I don't know if I could pray for her. I don't know if I could pray for him, my ex-husband, my ex-wife. Oh, I don't know if I could pray. They hurt me so bad. I'm going to tell you why you pray for them. You pray for them because the original benefactor, the Lord, has given you a sound mind. He's given you a body of believers. You are belonging to the church of the living God. You've got family. You've got people around. You've got a job. You've got clothes on your back. You've got a roof over your head. I'm going to pay it forward. I'm going to pray it forward. 
Because if I do, I'm going to get clarity. I'm not going to live in, a, in bondage of bitterness. I'm not going to live in a jail of jealousy. I'm going to pray it forward. If somebody smites you on one cheek, turn the other cheek. Why? I found clarity in the midst of confusion. Would you stand to your feet this morning? Oh, I feel the Holy Ghost in this place. Now, here's what we're going to do this morning. I don't want you to come to this altar with any kind of a prayer for yourself. We're going to pray it forward this morning. And I want you to step out from where you're standing and come to this altar in just a moment. To pray for someone else. It may be a co-worker. It may be an unsaved family member. But this morning, for just a few moments, can you think of somebody that you can pray for today? Maybe they're here, maybe they're not here. But if you begin to pray for them, you'll begin to feel the presence of God come in your heart and in your life. And you say, I'm going to pray it forward. It doesn't mean that they're deserving of the prayer. It doesn't mean that they didn't hurt you. It may be an enemy. It may be a friend. It may be a co-worker. It may be a family member. But if right now in your mind you can think of somebody you'd like to pray for, I wonder, would you step out from where you're standing and join these others that are coming? And we're going to pray it forward this morning. We're going to come down around the front. We've got a few minutes today. I, I stopped early on, on purpose. Because we got to have the application of this principle. God wants to set you free today. I said God wants to set you free today. I'm feeling this in the Holy Ghost. So I'm going to stay on it for just a moment. Some of you are living in captivity because of hurt feelings. Things you've not been able to get over. It's brought confusion to your whole life your family, your relationships. It affects everything. I wonder right now if you could just pray it forward. I wonder, could you pray for that person who harmed you? Would you do that? Those of you that are in that situation, you know who I'm talking to. You say, well, pastor, that doesn't apply to me. Then find somebody you can pray for right now. Maybe it's an unsaved son or a daughter. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a good friend. Somebody you grew up with. I wonder now all across this building, would you lift your hands and would you lift your voices? And would you pray now with authority and with purpose and say, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, I come not for myself, Lord. But, oh God, I come. I come to pray, Lord, for this particular individual. God, even as your servant Solomon, when you gave him an open book, Lord, he didn't pray for himself. He prayed that you would bless the children of Israel. That there would be wisdom to lead your people. And God, that prayer so pleased you. That you said, because you didn't pray for yourself, I'm going to give you great riches. 
such that man has never known. I'm going to give you great wisdom such that man has never known. I pray God today that as your people pray, not for themselves, but for others. Clarity. Clarity of understanding. There would be a revelation of real joy. Oh, that's it, church. Offer up those prayers before the Lord as a sweet-smelling savor. We're here, God, not for ourselves. But we're here, God, for somebody else. I'm praying. I'm praying for somebody else. That's it. Why don't you turn now and pray for the one you're standing next to? Why don't you just turn and put your hand or maybe you want to take them by the hand? Ask your neighbor, can I pray for you? Let every one of us that's in this building today, let us pray for the person that we're standing next to. That's it. That's it. Oh, there's a massive healing going on right now. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Yes, Lord.
That's it. Keep praying. Come on, it's still 10 minutes till noon. You got 10 more minutes. Keep praying. Keep praying till you get a breakthrough.
Thank you.